You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. For the last couple months, we've been in a series in the Psalms. The tagline for that, that series has been this, prayer songs for the church to live with the hope of salvation in a sin-broken world. To live with the hope of salvation in a sin-broken world. The Psalms have reminded us that though we grieve today, though we feel the pain of the unrelenting attacks of the enemy, there is a hope we can have. A hope that sees the trouble of today and looks ahead to the final days and is reminded what, that what's ahead of us. And what, is, and what that is, is this ultimate completed salvation. The, sa- the salvation of the Lord. The Psalms have showed us that. Psalm chapter 7 shows us this vividly. It shows us this explicitly. This psalm is a good psalm to end on. At first, I thought, oh man, another heavy psalm? I don't know, Lord. I don't know if we could take another heavy one. But then as I dug in, oh, it's full of the gospel. It's full of, of looking to salvation in the Lord. It's full of realities. There are, there are some really big, wild things shared here. But I think it's really, really good for us to end on this psalm, our, to end our psalm series on this psalm. It has a little bit of everything in it, from Psalm 1 all the way through Psalm 6. If you were to go back and look, there are echoes of each of those psalms in this particular psalm. There is a reminder that there are only two ways to live. There's the pathway towards God, and there's the pathway of rebellion against God. There's only two ways we can live. Those who take refuge in the Lord and those who rebel against Him. In this psalm, there is lament. There is a grief that troubles David, and he finds himself crying out to the Lord with this complaint to the Lord. And he appeals to to the Lord to act in righteous judgment. There is a cry to God to save the innocent and crush the wicked. There is a declaration of the Lord's sovereignty and kingship over all things in this psalm. And there is a thanksgiving and praise that looks to the Lord's completion of salvation all packed into this one psalm. All of that. So if you went from Psalm 1 and traced each one of those psalms, you would find bits and pieces, echoes into this psalm. So what what a way to end. It's as if when you read through this psalm, this, this just grabbed at my heart. It's almost as if this psalm cries out to us. As David cries out to the Lord, it's as if this psalm cries out to our hearts. These words, whatever sorrow and suffering may be today, whatever your sorrow, whatever your suffering may you find yourself in today, look to the day of your salvation. Look to the day of your completed salvation when your God crushes evil once and for all and your salvation is fully realized. That day when He finishes at His throne what Christ started at the cross. That's what this psalm is crying out to us. Look to the day when he finishes at his throne what he started at the cross. Oh, wonderful truths. 
So in light of that, we are not going to read the psalm all at once. We're going to go through it bit by bit and let it unfold. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, may you take the the little attempts of this weak pastor and may you show yourself strong in your word. May your spirit apply the truths of your word to our hearts. Grab a hold of us. Lord, I know, I can feel it. I can even be preaching and have distracting thoughts come to my mind. Lord, I pray for the the congregation, for the body. Lord, would you help them? Lord, would you allow, allow and enable them somehow, supernaturally, Lord, to focus, to hear the word, to listen to every word that you have for us, to take heart, grab hold of our wandering minds, and Lord, most importantly, grab hold this morning of wandering hearts. Oh, Lord, for those who have taken refuge in you, may you strengthen and encourage their faith in you that you will complete what you've begun. You will save them to the uttermost despite all the difficulties that we may face today, despite the whispers and lies of the accuser. You will save us to the uttermost. And for those who have lived as rebels, Oh, Lord, would you call them by your saving grace? Would you soften their hearts? May you rush upon them in your goodness to look at you, to love you, to trust you, and to follow you. May they run to you as a refuge from the storm. Lord, we love you and praise you. Be exalted now. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, amen. Amen. This is another psalm of David. When you read the heading, if you look right before the psalm, Psalm verse, verse 1, when you read the heading, it, it tells us that it, it's this psalm that's concerning the words of Cush, this Benjaminite. We don't know who this man Cush is or the exact circumstance that this psalm is referring to, but what we do know about the Benjaminites is that this was the tribe of King Saul. The tribe of King Saul. Saul was the king, right? And, and the king of God's people, the king of Israel. And David, at this point in his life, was anointed as the future king of Israel. And so, from that point on, essentially, well, there's really after Goliath, and the people are chanting and cheering for David, Saul is filled with this jealous anger and hatred towards David. And he essentially commits the rest of his life trying to hunt David down and kill him. And there's this point in 1 Samuel where Saul essentially calls out to his tribe of Benjaminites for loyalty and allegiance against David. And we know in Scripture, David had the opportunity to kill King Saul. He had, there was a moment in a cave where he had an opportunity to kill him, and he didn't. And there's this point where Saul even realizes David could have taken his life, and he turns to David, and he, he, he himself calls David righteous. You are more righteous than I. He says this in 1 Samuel 24, verse 17. He says, For you have repaid me with good. This is Saul speaking to David. You have repaid me with good, where I have repaid you with evil. When Saul eventually dies the battle against the Philistines, it led to this long, intense battle. And you would think it would be against the Philistines only. But it was this battle against essentially the tribe of the the Benjaminites. 
Saul's people, the house of Saul. They were kind of leading the charge against David for years to come. It would be years before David was officially established as king over all of the tribes. But here's what we see. So this Benjaminite, this Benjaminite grudge and hatred for David just kind of carried over throughout the years. And it pops up in Scripture. There's these moments where the Benjaminites are seeing David and they, they cry out these false accusations against him. So, so we heard about Absalom in Psalm chapter 3, where David's son is trying to overthrow David. Absalom is trying to overthrow David. He's trying to take over the throne. He's trying to steal the hearts of God's people. And there's this point where David is fleeing from Jerusalem and he's, he's with his men. They're leaving Jerusalem and there is, we're told, a Benjaminite who sees David and his men, and he yells these false accusations at David. Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! What accusations, right? You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son. We know these were false accusations. David didn't steal the throne away. David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he chose not to, to walk in righteousness, actually. David, David is going and he's hearing these accusations. We know this is not true. The Lord did not intend for Absalom to take over the throne. He ends up dying. These were lies of an accuser. And so this helps us, I, I think, as we know this background. When David talks about in this psalm what he's crying out for, these accusations, these lies, I'm being pursued and hunted down. It helps us to understand the experience David's, of David's hurt and pain. He's accused of being hunted, lied about, called worthless before God, worthless before the Lord. And all of that seems to be informing this psalm as David looks to the Lord. And we then, we then are reminded in our experience of hurt and pain to look to the Lord as we see our brother David look to the Lord. Here's the first thing we see if you're taking notes in verses 1 through 2. The Lord our refuge. David looks to the Lord, his refuge. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces and none to deliver. Before I keep going, children, children, there are going to be a lot of things in this psalm that are going to be like, I could draw that. That's the way I would like for you to take notes. I want you to draw what you hear. There's going to be lots of things. God is like a warrior with a sword and arrows. He's like a warrior with a shield. There are these lions that we talk about here. There's like a refuge, almost like a castle of God. Lots of things you could draw. And here's, here's what we'd like to do. Pastor Rob and I would love to see your notes at the end of service, okay? Okay, let's keep going here. In the midst of David's trial, here he is once again, as we've already seen, first Psalms, we've already been through, he's running to the Lord. When we see the name LORD written in all caps in the Old Testament like it is here, 
It's the name Lord Yahweh. That's what it's referring to, this Yahweh. David uses this call of God, Yahweh, in this psalm seven times. So how interesting, Psalm 7, seven times he's using the name of the Lord. It's this way of recalling and appealing to the covenantal relationship David has with the Lord. This is not only Lord as King. He is the covenantal Lord Yahweh, God of the universe, the great I Am who is in relationship with David. The I Am, the great I Am who over history has covenanted with His chosen people, meaning He has taken on a promised union with them to remain in relationship with them, to love them, to care for them, to be with them. He is committed to them, to deal with them righteously. In his covenant relationship with them, he always does. So this is key. A covenantal God, a God who's covenanted with us, who's promised this relationship and to uphold his side of the bargain. In that relationship, he always does what is right concerning them. Always does what is right and good towards them, though it may not always be what his people want. As he is covenanted with them, he will always do what is right. David comes to the Lord knowing this is the great I Am who acts in his saving work with unmatched power and might over and over again. He is the God who saves. And David is calling to him as one appealing to this covenantal relationship between himself and this mighty and saving God who always does what is right and is able to save. As if, it's as if he's appealing to the Lord, to the Lord, Lord, act according to your relationship with me. But then also, I think what happens in the Psalms is it's also this appeal to his own heart, to, to, to remind his own heart of his relationship with, the God, with this God, with Yahweh. I don't know if we consider this covenantal relationship with the God of the universe enough. When was the last time in your prayer time, as you ran to the Lord, where you just rehearsed, this God of the universe is in covenant with me. He's committed. And He keeps His side of the bargain. Where I often fail, He never fails in keeping His side of faithfulness. When was the last time in prayer you just rehearsed those truths that you thought back to the God that we see in the Old Testament this amazing, miraculous, powerful, faithful God who rules over all things and can save in the midst of all things. And let that inform your daily living. I don't know if we do that enough. When we forget that, that in Christ, we too have been brought into covenant relationship with this very same Lord, Yahweh, when we forget that, when we forget it, we become more like the Israelites of the wilderness. This God who's done mighty things to save. And for us, on this side of the cross, it's the, it's the, it's the flag of the cross put into the ground. This, this, this act of God as in the early church as they looked to the exodus. 
We look to God's salvation come through Christ. But we can be just like the Israelites as we forget His covenant faithfulness. That He's He's in covenant with us, and we forget, and, we, and we're like the Israelites who go on. They're forgetting. They start to despair. They start to grumble. They forget the faithfulness and goodness of their God. And we read that, and we're like, come on, guys. Step it up, right? Like It gets, almost gets frustrating. But how often, when we forget this covenantal God who in Christ is, through Christ is in relationship with us, we become the very same people. We forget, and so we lack assurance. We lack peace. Our hearts are not restful in Him. They're not comforted, and we maybe even lack hope. But the heart that remembers and lives in light of this promised relationship with the Lord finds much-needed assurance in the midst of sorrows and trouble. They find much-needed assurance in the midst of the wilderness of this world. The heart that remembers that this covenant-keeping God is, is my God. He's my Lord. That heart can find peace in the wilderness. That heart can find comfort in the wilderness. That heart can have hope in the midst of hurt because they recall my God who is covenanted with me, who is for His glory, is also for my good and will always do what is right towards me. Isn't that comforting, precious saints? So because of this amazing relationship David has with the Lord, he runs to take refuge in the Lord, to hide away in the strong tower of the Lord for safekeeping, where he finds care for his soul and safety from his enemies. He puts his trust in the Lord to guard and to keep him in the midst of his trouble. And there is a real enemy. And so, so he cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Deliver me, take me out of this and bring me nearer to you. In verse 2, David envisions these enemies like a lion hunting him down. These enemies, yes, these enemies. I would always prefer amens, but I'll take the roaring lion every once in a while. <laughs> David envisions these, these enemies like roaring lions hunting him down and if left by himself, they would catch him and tear him apart. But listen, listen to the language David uses here. Notice, it doesn't just seem like he's talking about the enemies that are physically against him. He says, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. The Psalms, the Psalms are divinely inspired they are written in a way that goes deeper than just the physical enemies and battles we encounter in this world. They point to the greater unseen battle that is raging for the eternal state of our very souls. The, the, the Psalms walk this balance of dealing with the realities of the present physical enemies while also helping us see that there is a great enemy of our souls who has set himself against God and the Lord's people and is like a lion that's on the hunt, right? 1 Peter 5, 8 points us to that. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
I was talking to my girls about all the little different illustrations from this text yesterday at dinner. We're sitting at the table, and I said, there's going to be like lions that's going to call the enemy of God's people and of God himself like a lion who's trying to hunt God's people. And, and, and one of my daughters said, Dad, that's kind of confusing because I thought Jesus was the lion of Judah. Well, the enemy wasn't a lion. So how do we reconcile that? And we came to this. As we talk through it, maybe this will help our kids understand. As we talk through it, we, we begin to think of the Lion King, the movie The Lion King. So this is more for our children at this moment, just so you know. The Lion King. And there is a lion who is the enemy. And he's this, he's this mean, I was going to say grouchy, but just mean and evil lion. But then there's a greater lion. There's this one called Simba who comes onto the scene, the son, the true son of the king who fights for the kingdom and he defeats this enemy lion. So we said, that's just like what it is. So we're talking at the dinner table. Hopefully that serves our children. Yes, Jesus is the lion of Judah who will return as the mighty king over his kingdom and reign and rule over all people like a roaring lion. He left like a little lamb sacrifice for his people and he returns like a mighty lion and yes the bible describes our enemy of our souls like this devouring lion but little ones know this he is not more mighty than mighty king jesus right he is not more mighty but he is like a lion who's roaring about trying to devour God's people. So as, as we read the Psalms, we are served to see that they are often addressing both physical realities of trouble. There are real genuine enemies that are hunting David and lying about him and accusing him. And there are these, in a sense, it points us to the spiritual realities of evil, that there is a real enemy of God's people hunting like a lion. And who else do we hear is like an accuser, an accuser of God's people wanting nothing more than to condemn God's people, wanting nothing more than to breathe lies and hates before God about us, nothing, wanting, how many times have you felt this battle? The fiery dart of the enemy whispering just like that Benjaminite, you are worthless. Look what you have done. God, to God you are worthless. How many of us have heard that cry? That declaration of the enemy. Precious saints, these psalms remind us there is a greater battle. There's a greater battle that we look to, but there's a greater king. There's a greater king. Oh my. Oh my. As we turn to Christ and trust in who he is and what he has accomplished for us through his saving work in his obedient life, his perfectly obedient life, and his sacrificial death on the cross, we are taking refuge in him. We're running to him. And we now have one who stands against our enemy on our behalf as one who intercedes for us, right? A mediator between us and the Father. So every one of those accusations that is fired away, he guards and he defends his people. David continues on in the midst of his enemy's lies and pursuit. He looks to the Lord, our righteous judge, verses 3 through 11. The Lord, our righteous judge. David says, 
Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, so all these accusations, it's going to unpack that. If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And here are what I would say are the main verses of this psalm. These middle verses, right, that everything before it points to and everything after it flows out of. These middle verses, verses 9 through 11, he says this, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. In response to these accusations made of David, David appeals to his innocence before the Lord, knowing the Lord is a righteous judge. His his judgments are all good and right. And so it's as if David pleads his case before the Lord, who he knows will ultimately one day judge all creation, and he will judge it fairly and rightly. And just to be clear, just to clear up any misunderstanding, when David says for the Lord to judge him according to his own righteousness and integrity, he's talking about in this particular situation. David knows that he he hasn't done what he's being accused of. And what he's being accused of is doing evil to undeserving people. And he knows that if he had done that evil, everything that he was accused of, the Lord would be right to judge him accordingly. David has a right view of evil and the wrath of God. He has a right view of wickedness and the judgment of God. He says, Lord, if I did do all of this, I know I didn't. But if I did, if I did evil, it would be right for you to judge me according to what I deserve. He says, I didn't do this. So I'm pleading my innocence before you. I didn't do what they're saying. If I did do this evil, Lord, that I'm accused of, then you're right to give me over to my enemy, for me to be trampled upon, to be overtaken. The Lord is a righteous judge who distinguishes between what is good and evil perfectly and will bring judgment upon evil because that's what is right. And so David knows it. Brothers and sisters, This truth of what David is understanding here, what he's laying hold of, this truth is at the foundation of the gospel. It is the very core of the gospel. God, the righteous judge, will punish all evil and evildoers, and rightly so. And apart from the saving work of Christ, we deserve the righteous judgment of God for every act and thought of sin. Because it's evil in the sight of God. That 
It is right for him to punish us for all of our evil, isn't it? But the greatest joy of the gospel, so that's at the core foundation of the gospel, but the greatest joy of the gospel is that the very same one who judges justly has provided a substitute for those who deserve the punishment. He's provided a substitute named Jesus. That's the greatest joy of the gospel, who who him himself would stand in our place and take on himself all the punishment for our evil on the cross so that the righteous judge could look at us then and declare us forgiven. And from that point on, here's what I love, as we run to him and take refuge in Jesus, as he looks upon us daily, he now looks at us and he sees people covered in the innocent righteousness of Christ. Praise God. I hope it served not just our children, but I hope it served you, precious saints, when you saw hope wrapped up in my arms and in that blanket. I so hope it served you because I know for a fact there are so many Christians, so many of us who wrestle with the assurance of being forgiven. There's so many of us who wrestle with this reality of Christ's righteousness covering me. And so when God the Father looks upon me, the the great righteous judge, by God's grace, He's not judging me for all of my stuff. He's not judging me for what I've done, both positive or negative. He looks at me, and when I've taken refuge in Christ, when I'm wrapped in His righteousness, what does the Father see? What does this righteous judge see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so he can rightly declare, because Christ has paid for that sin, he can look upon us and say, forgiven. Isn't that good news? Precious saints, don't forget it. This covenant-keeping God who covers you in his righteousness, who keeps you as you take refuge in him, this strong tower who wraps you up and both guards you and keeps you, and sustains you, and nourishes you, and calls you His own. What an amazing truth. I I can think early on in in my faith, as I was a young person, for for years I just struggled with this reality. I knew I was saved by grace. I knew there was nothing I deserved to earn that. I, I, I was glad in it. But then I lived the rest of my life as if I was constantly trying to keep that salvation. As if it was one of these things like, God's looking at my righteousness alone. And it led to this young man who was constantly unassured, who felt like a slave to God, who lacked in joy. And I was just this roller coaster of faith. It all depended about how I was doing. If I was doing well in the Lord, then I felt like the Lord loved me. And he was looking at me kindly. And if I blew it, then I felt like, oh man, there there it is. There there it was. God hates me. And when I was missing the whole point of the gospel, we are imperfect people who are trusting in a perfect Savior. And it's His perfect righteousness that covers us. And that's the basis of our relationship with the Father. And that's never changing, right? Christ's righteousness isn't a roller coaster up and down like mine. It's steady and full and good. 
Now we know that doesn't take away the truth that as the Lord empowers us to follow him, as we love him, we want to work out our salvation, right? We want to live out our faith. We want to honor him and live for him. But we're not slaves. It's, it's glad people who have been saved by grace. So now, standing in the righteousness of Christ, in the refuge of Christ, now the enemy's accusations of guilty can't stand against Christ's declaration of forgiven. Because of this, because of this very thing, the justification of Christ, standing in his righteousness, declared forgiven, the accusations of the enemy don't stick anymore. It enables us then, as we live in this sin-broken world, to join with our brother David as he appeals to God in righteousness to come and say to the Lord, Lord, save us to the uttermost. Come and finish what you started. Put an end to all this evil and wickedness, Lord. Bring the enemy of your people to an end. Arise in your anger against the evil, Lord. Awaken. Show up. That's what David's crying out. Lord, show up. We've been waiting for you. Would you show up? Show up and bring the final judgment we've waited for. And how, why can the Christian cry out for that? Because for those who have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus, who are kept in his righteousness, who are held in him, we can look with eagerness to that day, though it is a terrifying day. Even the children use that word, right? It's terrifying. It's the God of the universe who knows the minds and hearts of all people. He knows their intentions. He knows their motives, their hidden wickedness. None will escape his sight. He knows what's really ruling our hearts and he's, he's filled with indignation at evil. Meaning, when he, when he, that word, he, meaning he sees the wrong done. He sees the wickedness done. He sees the evil and he is filled with a righteous anger. And I love that he says every day. He's filled with it every day. He's, there's not a day that goes by where he's not aware of the wickedness and evil of this world. There's not a day, and what does that mean for us? There's not a day that goes by when he's aware that what you're enduring at the hands of this wicked and sin-broken world. And he's filled with indignation. He sees it, and it bothers him. And I am so glad we have a God that's bothered by the sin-broken world we live in. He hates it with a righteous anger, and he will unleash his storm of judgment on that day of judgment. It will be a storm. Yet for those who have taken refuge in Christ, he covers us like a shield. He uses that in verse 10. My God is my shield. And I don't think it's just a shield against the enemy. I think that there's that balance, that parallel working. I think it is against the enemy, but I don't think it's just the enemy. But even a sh he's shielding us on that day from his coming wrath, the storm of his fury that burns hot against sin. He shields us from it, leaving us with nothing to fear 
nothing to fear on that day, looking forward to that day with all hope in our hearts. So we run then, we run and we find refuge in the Lord, like running, I love this, it's like running to a storm shelter in the midst of a tornado coming. I used to live in West Texas, it's just flat ground, and we get these, these tornado warnings, that there is tornado coming, take shelter, and it's this alarms, and it happened all the time as a kid, and we would have to go and find shelter. So we'd make shelter and padding and all this kinds of stuff. We did it so many times as a kid, and I think of it in this way. There is, this psalm declares to us, there is a coming storm. There's a coming tornado of the wrath of God against all wickedness and all sin. So run to the storm shelter. Run and take refuge in Him. Run for safety. In one sense, David longs for the immediate end of his enemies waging war against him. But in another sense, David's cry is pointing ahead to that final judgment. When he says, he says, all the peoples, bring them, gather all the peoples, this day of judgment that you have appointed. Come and do it, Lord. Come and do it. Come and save your people for once, once and for all. Come, Lord, rescue us, deliver us. Come and gather all the peoples. Rule and reign on high over them. Show that you are the king. Let every knee bow before you, Lord. Come and be enthroned on high above all people and accomplish your judgment once and for all. That's the day David is looking to. So that's the battles of today with his eyes looking and informed by that day. Bring the evil and wickedness of this world to an end. Establish your people with you, he says. Establish the righteousness. Set our feet upon your home and your land, the land we've longed for in your presence. Establish us with you once and for all. Save us. Bring us near to you. For the Christian, that day is the most joyful day. I've said this so many times when we've talked about looking towards eternity. For the Christian, that day is the most joyful and glorious of days. But for the one who doesn't turn from their evil and take refuge in the Lord, the one who doesn't repent, the psalm says, it is the most horrific and terrifying of days. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on this particular psalm, there's a lot of old, old English language that it's hard to read sometimes for me. But I got this part. These couple of words he just repeated throughout the sermon. <laughs> and it's hard. Turn or burn. <laughs> I'm not Charles Spurgeon, so I'm not titling my sermon that. But that is the weight of this psalm. Turn away from your sin and evil or there is punishment coming and tremble. That leads us to our third and final point. The Lord, our warrior God. The Lord is a warrior God. Verses 12 through 16. 
If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Not only is the Lord referred to as a righteous judge, but he is a warrior God. And here's what I love. It's, it's, as, it's as if in one hand he is holding his, the shield as he saves his own as he shields them. And then with his other hand, he slays his enemies down. That is the picture of this song. With one hand, he is kind and tender. And he says, come to me and I will care for you. Come to me and I will guard you. Come to me and I will shield you. And with the other hand, he says, I will slay every one of my enemies. He is a warrior God. In our, so in our culture, in the church culture, sometimes we lean heavy one or the other ways, right? It's all the tender heart love of God. And we forget that he's a warrior God who hates sin. Or it's all God's sword in his hand. And it's all about sin and him crushing us. And we forget that he also holds in the other hand a kind shield that guards us and keeps us. It is a balance of both, precious saints. A God, a warrior God, our warrior God, who will save in one hand, who will shield us, and in the other who will slay every enemy down. Those who take refuge in Him, He will defend and save. But those who refuse, those who refuse to humble themselves in repentance, so they see their evil, they turn away from their evil, and they turn to the Lord and put their trust in the Lord. This warrior God is readying. What, what a passage of Scripture. He is readying His deadly weapons. <laughs> He's wetting his sword, it says. That means he's sharpening his sword. He's going to make sure he pierces every heart once and for all. Either he pierces you now with saving grace, or on that day he will pierce with fierce judgment. His bow is bent back like an archer readied. You know, when you look at the scripture and you see the flood, and what does the Lord put in the sky as a promise to his people? A bow. It's a bow. When you go back and read that scripture, it says, the bow of the Lord he put in the sky. You know what that, that, that is intending? When you see God's bow throughout the scripture, it is this. It is his wrath and judgment pointed and readied. It's his deadly weapons against people. And what he kindly does on that day when he makes that promise, he points his bow away from us for a time. He's pointing his bow away. But there's a day when he has picked it up. And you see it's readied, isn't it? It's bent and readied. 
And there's going to be a day where he turns that back around and points it once again. And it says it's, it's ready. Imagine it's at the fingertips of the archer. All it takes is just a release, a slight quarter inch of a move of the finger. That's, that's what he's declaring here. Be ready. It's there. It's here. There's no time to waste. The archer is pulled back and ready. The bow is ready. And that's what makes it so, so terrifying and so sad when we have people in our community who use that bow blindly as almost their de declaration to sin. Isn't that amazing? They're taking what God has intended almost as a, a sweet promise, but then as judgment. And they're saying, oh, that's for me. And in one way, if they don't turn from sin, it will be for them. The bow is readied. His fiery arrows are lit. When, where the enemy of God has spent a lifetime slinging little fiery darts at God's people, now our warrior God will turn the tables on the enemy and the evil one. Those who have done evil to his people have lived evil lives. He will turn the tables. These little fiery darts will be nothing compared to these engulfed arrows of God. You know, normal arrows slung at a city do much damage. But arrows engulfed in flames, they consume everything. Whatever they hit, whew, consuming it all. Our God, our God, who's readied his bow, Peter points to the judgment of God coming for the wicked in, in, in the New Testament. He says, it, it, he recalls it's like a flood. He says, he recalls like the days of Noah. It will be like this flood of judgment of God. But then he says something, something interesting, except this time it will be like an all-consuming flood of fire. A flood of fire that will come. So here we are, Psalm 7, this flood of engulfing, fiery arrows flung at God's enemies that will consume all things. It can be very sad, in a sense, to read, can't it? In one sense, I think it's good for our hearts to say, thank you, Lord, that you will rescue us. And then there's another part that says, Lord, that is so sad. It is so sad. It's heartbreaking for those who don't know you. And so in one way, it should compel us Lord, let us share the good news of the gospel. Flee. That's what this psalm does. Do you notice that? For those who don't repent, this is what's for them. It's almost as if the psalm declares this good news. But for those who take refuge, there's a different end for you. And so it almost, in a way, tenderizes our hearts. It says, oh, Lord, I don't want that for my neighbor. I don't want that for my child. I don't want that for my mom or my dad who doesn't know you. And so, Lord, out of, out of a heart of love, we are compelled to go to them. Sometimes I think we evangelize like we're trying to make trophies. And we don't care about the people. These are people. And listen to what they're destined towards. And our hearts should break for them.
It's as if the word of the Lord doesn't want us to be misunderstood, though. It doesn't want the character of the Lord to be misunderstood. We may feel a sadness and a sorrow for those who are lost and wayward. But remember, he's a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. This flood of fiery judgment isn't coming upon innocent people. Verse 14 paints a picture that the seed of evil is conceived within them, and so they're pregnant with mischief, it says. They're pregnant with trouble. It's what's birthed out of them, and it comes out of them. In this case, David relates it to lies. It's what is birthing these wicked lies and these accusations. But the point of this verse is that this storm of righteous judgment comes upon peoples, and they're not innocent. At their very core, there's an evil that hates God. There's an evil that rebels against God, that rejects His kind heart of refuge. The Lord will not allow one of His own to endure such judgment on that day. But this judgment will come upon those who at their core love evil and hate God. Verses 15 through 16 are essentially saying they're getting what they deserve. They make, they're making a hole and then they fall into it. The violence they intend is falling upon them. It's as if this psalm just cries out to us, look at your God, precious saints. Look at your God, you battle-weary saints, and know that He is a warrior God who will win in the end. Praise God for that. Praise God. As we've heard before, the Psalms are not just a prayer prayed. They are a song sung. And as this song would have been sung publicly, imagine us gathering and singing this loudly. Those who hear, those walking by outside of us, those among the congregation who hear this. It's a warning to them. It's a call to turn from sin. It's a call that there's a fiery judgment coming. Run! There's a storm brewing. Run away and run to the refuge God has, has given for you, that God has provided, and it's Him Himself. Run! The bow is bent and ready. There is not another day to wait. Turn from your sin, repent, the Lord says, and run to refuge in Christ, who will pay for all that sin, who on himself takes that punishment, so that you then are forgiven. What a song to sing! What a song to sing! And I debated on preaching this text. Lord, that's so heavy for us, and we're going to have kids in the room. And I thought, we need the gospel. And our children need the real, true gospel. They need to hear these tough things. Precious saints, take time at home to explain what I couldn't explain in my little short time here. Please, serve your children's hearts. Unpack the gospel and let them see, yes, he is a warrior God. But for those who take refuge, oh, he is so good. And he is so kind. And he's kind in the way that he even calls them to repent. It's a display of his kindness and grace and patience. Please go home and unpack. Precious saints, for those of you in this room who have taken refuge, which I think is most of us in Christ, this was a song for battle-weary saints. This is a song 
and a prayer song for battle-weary saints as we live lives filled with losses. It can feel like losses. Cancer hits, it feels like a loss. Sinned against my mom. It feels like my mother and my parents hate me. It, It feels like a loss. My child rejects me and he's rejecting the Lord. It feels like a loss. This world, this life, this sin-broken world is filled with losses. And yet this prayer song reminds us that for those who take refuge in the Lord, the most important battle of our lives is won in the end. And it's to give us hope and gladness. Our righteous Lord, who is judge and warrior God, will save us to the uttermost in the end. So take refuge in the Lord and take heart. Your warrior God is coming to save you. That is the declaration of this psalm. Precious saints, please stand. Please stand. This psalm ends with one concluding verse of praise. Don't be fooled. We are not to walk out of this psalm song feeling this weight and burden if you have taken refuge in the Lord. David, in verse 17, turns to the Lord and gives praise to the Lord. All of this adds up from verse 1 to now 17. All of it is adding up to praise the Lord as we behold Him, as we look upon Him in His might and strength and His willingness to save. Oh, in one hand, right? Recall that picture. In one hand, the shield of our salvation guarding us, who will save us to the uttermost. On the other hand, every death will be pierced and killed once and for all. The wickedness in the hearts of all creatures will be pierced once and for all, right? Isaiah points to that. There will be a day when children will play with the cobra. The lion and the lamb will dwell together. It's to say that day is coming, precious saints. Your warrior God is coming, and he will establish you with him forever and ever. That is to lead us to verse 17. Church, I want us to say this together. It is a declaration of praise. So follow along with me. It'll be up on the screen. This, all of this leads to this. Verse 17. For those who have taken refuge in the Lord, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High.